0: Welcome to Skim This. We might be in a new calendar year, but this week we've got some news deja vu. In the U.S., inflation is still climbing, and the Senate is debating killing the filibuster for what feels like the 100th time. While over in Europe, Russia and the U.S. are in talks again over the tension at the Ukrainian border, and those negotiations are giving us major
1: Cold War vibes. It is one of the most significant crises with Russia since the end of the Cold War.
0: But it's not all old drama. We've also got the latest on the never-ending rally between tennis player Novak Djokovic and the Australian government, major universities embroiled in a price-fixing scandal, and trouble for
2: Prince Andrew. Britain's Prince Andrew faces possible trial in connection with his former friend Jeffrey Epstein. And
0: to end the show this week, we're telling you about one of our New Year's resolutions, getting the most out of our paychecks. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. Let's start with some breaking news. Before we published the show, the Supreme Court issued a major ruling and blocked the Biden administration from enforcing its vaccine mandate for big private companies. You might remember that President Biden had issued a pretty major mandate last year, which required employees at businesses with 100 or more people to get vaccinated or get tested for COVID every week. That mandate applied to almost two-thirds of the U.S. workforce. But now, the Supremes are letting companies off the hook, saying the White House didn't have the authority to do this in the first place. We should note, the justices did uphold a smaller piece of Biden's mandate that requires vaccines for healthcare workers at facilities that receive Medicare and Medicaid funding. Still, this ruling is a big blow to Team Biden, especially in the middle of another surge of COVID cases. All right, speaking of the pandemic, let's get to some other headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up, COVID-19 hospitalizations in the U.S. reached the highest level of any other point in the pandemic. And hospitals are struggling to keep up. Hospitals are seriously short-staffed right now, thanks to Omicron, as thousands of healthcare workers are calling out sick. And as a reminder, healthcare workers have already been through enough. They've been speaking out about burnout for months now and have been leaving the industry in droves. In the past few days, nearly a quarter of US hospitals have reported critical staffing shortages, which is on par with the staffing crisis from December 2020. These latest shortages have led hospitals to take the bold step of asking employees who tested positive for COVID, who have mild or no symptoms, to keep working. This isn't proving to be super popular with some healthcare professionals who say they might not have symptoms, but they could still be infectious and could still pose a risk to their patients. All right, next headline. Consumer prices were up 7% in
1: December compared to a year ago.
0: That puts inflation at its highest level in nearly 40 years. And that means things like food, rent, and used cars are all a lot more expensive right now. Supply chain issues are a part of the problem, as is Omicron, which is making food workers sick and leaving some grocery store shelves bare. The Federal Reserve, which is tasked with keeping inflation stable, has already said it'll likely increase interest rates three times this year to try to cool the economy and get prices lower. Meanwhile, inflation isn't just a problem for economic policymakers; It's become a major political issue ahead of the 2022 midterms. Republicans are blaming President Biden and legislative spending for the inflation bump, while the Biden administration says it's making progress on keeping prices down. But regardless of the political back and forth, yesterday's report is only putting more pressure on the government to do more to combat inflation or possibly risk a recession. Okay, here's our next headline.
1: A bombshell lawsuit accusing some of the nation's top universities of working together to limit the amount of financial aid handed out to many students.
0: Here's the context. Earlier this week, five former students sued top U.S. universities, including Yale, Georgetown, Columbia, and 13 others for violating antitrust laws. The lawsuit alleges that the universities unfairly limited students' financial aid packages and that the schools engaged in price fixing by overcharging students. Universities are technically allowed to collaborate to determine their financial aid formulas, but they can only do that if they don't weigh students' financial needs in their decisions to admit applicants. That's called need-blind admissions. But this lawsuit says these schools weren't ignoring the need of students in their admissions decisions and were actually inflating the cost of college. In response, the schools are firing back. Yale says its financial aid policy is 100% compliant with all laws, and Brown said the complaint was totally without merit. But despite those PR statements, this story isn't likely to go away. More students may jump on the bandwagon because anyone who received partial financial aid and graduated in the last 18 years from one of the universities could also be eligible to join the lawsuit.
2: And our final headline this week, Britain's Prince Andrew faces possible trial in connection with his former friend, Jeffrey Epstein. Here's what's going
0: on Prince Andrew, who is the second son of Queen Elizabeth, has fallen under scrutiny in recent years because of his ties to the late disgraced financier and sexual abuser, Jeffrey Epstein. And now, some serious and long standing allegations could land Prince Andrew in a courtroom. An American woman has accused Andrew of sexually abusing her back in 2001 and says it was Epstein who set the two up. Andrew has denied all the accusations against him and his legal team has been trying to get the lawsuit thrown out. His lawyers argued that because the accuser had already reached a settlement with Epstein, the lawsuit against Andrew himself wasn't valid, but that argument didn't fly in court. And this week, a US judge refused to toss out the lawsuit. Now, for the first time in its 1,000 years, the British monarchy is navigating uncharted territory. And on Thursday, the Queen announced she was stripping Andrew of his military titles and that he would no longer be addressed as His Royal Highness. That's a big deal. Whether Prince Andrew decides to fight this suit in court or if he refuses to cooperate at all remains to be seen, but one thing's for sure, this is a royal mess. American and Russian diplomats spent the early part of this week in rounds of intense negotiations. And while the two frenemies never really got along in the first place, there's a greater sense of urgency around these talks in particular. That's because Russian President Vladimir Putin has been increasing the number of troops at the Ukrainian border, which has some Western countries afraid that he's going to launch an all-out invasion and start a war in the process. This week, Russian officials said they told U.S. diplomats they didn't have any plans to invade Ukraine. But that hasn't stopped people from saying these talks feel as heated as negotiations from the Cold War. To break down the latest, we called up Andrea Kendall-Taylor. She's the director of the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. Hey, Andrea, thanks for joining us. My first question for you is around the talks that the US and Russia have been having this week. And it feels to me like we've been here
1: before, but can you remind me how we got here? I think if you were looking to how we got here, it's worth going back to the beginning of the Biden administration, where the Biden administration came in with ties between the United States and Russia at historic lows. And if you remember back in April, Russia has already accumulated its forces on Ukraine's border. That was very much, at the time, unexpected. So here we are again. In many ways, this is an extension, a continuation of that. So it is deja vu in some senses, but in other senses, this is clearly uh, a significant escalation to what we saw in April. I would say for President Putin, it's very much about trying to keep Ukraine in Russia's orbit. I think when President Putin looks at Ukraine, he sees that things are moving in a trajectory that's unfavorable to Russia. And so if he is going to have to use military force to change that trajectory, he would rather do it now than when the Ukrainian security forces, the Ukrainian military becomes more capable. So here we are. And when you say
0: things in Ukraine are shifting in a way that would not be favorable for Russia, could you just break down what you mean
1: for me by that? Well, the very ironic element about Russia's actions and approach to Ukraine is that it is because of Russia's actions that Ukraine has moved in a much more anti-Russia trajectory. Russia's own military aggression and in particular its seizure of Crimea in 2014 has led to a significant public shift in the way that the Ukrainian public views Russia. It's actually increased public demand to some degree for NATO membership but has certainly for a large part of Ukraine solidified its desire to integrate more closely into Euro-Atlantic institutions.
0: A lot of people say these talks feel like they have kind of Cold War energy or Cold War vibes. And I'm curious if you agree and why you think people are saying that.
1: I think so. I mean, just imagine, you know, the optics of yesterday, it was the United States and Russia who sat down at the table for more than seven hours discussing a conflict in Ukraine and broader European security issues where Ukraine was not present and the Europeans were not present. Of course, the Biden administration has gone out of its way to coordinate with allies, and we will see the meetings at NATO and the OSCE later this week. But that is certainly, I think, the vibe that you're getting at is the U.S. and Russia sitting down. And I also think the Cold War kind of mood to the meeting is also about what Russia laid out on the table, right? So the list of demands are really the two list of demands that Russia issued, one to the United States and one to NATO, was very much about rewinding time. It's about reversing the Cold War's outcomes. It's about reinstating spheres of influence and rewriting the security order in Europe. So in all of those ways, both in terms of the optics of the U.S. and Russia sitting down, but also the substance has a lot of echoes of the Cold War built in.
0: U.S. diplomats set pretty low expectations going into these talks. And I think some people are probably wondering, what's the point of having all these meetings if you don't expect anything to come from them? For a lot of our audience, I think that's the same as should this meeting have been an email?
1: Absolutely not, because the stakes are so high. I mean, we're talking about the potential of another major war in Europe. And so if there is a diplomatic path to be pursued, no matter how uncertain, I think it's incumbent on the Biden administration to do its due diligence and figure out if it's possible. I think there is a clear understanding that Russia could walk away from this week's meetings saying that diplomacy has failed and using that to build a public case for why they need to escalate in Ukraine. That's entirely understood in Washington and in Europe. But because the stakes are so high, you have to follow diplomacy as, as long as possible while planning for the worst.
0: Have we gotten to a point where Putin can kind of do whatever he wants and there's basically no threat the U.S. can make that will stop him?
1: I would say that's a fairly accurate description of where we are. I think, unfortunately, the United States has extremely limited leverage in this situation, in large part because when it comes to Ukraine, Russia simply cares more. And Putin understands that asymmetry of interest. But the Biden administration, I think, has done a very good job in trying to make Stark the choice that Putin faces. So on the one hand, on the diplomatic side, the Biden administration has communicated to Russia that we are willing to have negotiations about where we place missiles in Europe, about the size and scope of exercises. So on the one hand that we've said, yes, we are willing to do these things. There are certain conversations we are willing to have. On the other hand, if you choose not to go down that diplomatic path, we are going to use economic sanctions we've previously refrained from using. We will increase our footprint in Europe. We might be willing to put new weapon systems into Europe that we haven't done before. So it's a pretty clear choice. Further
0: potentially complicating things is that Russia also recently got involved in the unrest in nearby Kazakhstan. Why did Putin send troops in to help quell the unrest, especially when things are near a boiling point with the West?
1: So it certainly wasn't instability that the Kremlin welcomed. It was, you know, a black swan event, something that wasn't on anyone's radar. So why did they send troops into Kazakhstan? Well, because Putin isn't willing to let an autocrat be ousted by mass mobilization. It's just too close to home. He does, I think, actually believe that this is a provocation by the United States or efforts by, you know, these foreign agitators to cause unrest, to unseat leaders who are unfriendly. Kazakhstan is next door to Russia. And if protests can unseat a long-standing dictator there, Then they can do it in Russia. So it was really important for Russia to not let that happen. It's also worth noting, though, that there was an announcement that Russian troops will go home within seven to 10 days. So this is something that's fairly quick and isn't really a distraction for the Kremlin.
0: And my last question for you is we're coming up on Joe Biden's one year of being the president. It doesn't seem like President Biden wanted so much of his foreign policy agenda to be eaten up by Russian diplomacy how has Putin kind of forced him to reorient his focus and redo his whole foreign agenda?
1: It's really remarkable. This administration was really clear that China is the number one long-term strategic threat to the United States. Russia was very much a distant second. But I think if you look at the past 12 months, the number of high-level visits between U.S., senior U.S. officials and senior Russian officials... Obviously, Putin and Biden met in Geneva. They've talked on the phone multiple times. The same can't be said for Biden and Xi. It's across the board. The director of the CIA traveled to Moscow in December. Secretary of State Blinken has met with his counterpart, Lavrov, multiple times. So I would say probably one year into the Biden administration, this is not how they would have expected to be spending their time. It does go to show that even though, you know, there is this narrative out there that Russia is a declining power, that it's a second rate power, but there is something to be said. You know, Putin, his power, his position at home is in part predicated on Russia being a great power. And so he has a way of forcing and compelling the United States to take Russia seriously. I mean, he craves that attention. And so he has the resources and the capability to do that.
0: Andrea Kendall-Taylor, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Speaking of intense back and forths.
2: The biggest story in tennis right now surrounding world number one, Novak Djokovic. His visa has been denied and he is expected to be leaving Australia.
0: There's a new twist tonight in the Novak Djokovic saga. He's now under investigation over whether he lied on his travel entry form.
2: Novak Djokovic back on the tennis court in Australia after winning that courtroom battle over his visa, but that may not be the end of it.
0: How's that for a rally? As you just heard, tennis star Novak Djokovic has been at the center of a lot of drama over whether or not he can compete at the Australian Open. We'll break down what's going on in 60 seconds. Actually, a little more than 60 seconds. Novak Djokovic is the number one men's tennis player in the world, but he's not exactly universally well-liked. Sports commentators have said the tennis star is pretty polarizing, and this latest battle in Australia is no exception. Australia requires foreign travelers to be vaccinated against COVID-19 in order to enter the country. Djokovic, who's been openly skeptical about vaccines, received a quote, medical exemption to play at the Australian Open this month. Travel documents show he recently recovered from COVID, but the Australian government said, our travel restrictions are no joke, and hit the tennis star with a pretty fiery return. Last week, after he touched down Down Under, Djokovic was put in a temporary hotel detention facility, while his case was sent over to a judge. His own mother said Australia was keeping him as a, quote, prisoner, while people around the world, from Australia to his home country of Serbia, started protesting for Djokovic to play. But on Monday, an Aussie judge reinstated Djokovic's visa, saying the tennis player didn't have enough time to speak to his lawyers before he was detained. Okay, so match point Djokovic? Not so fast. Reporters have looked into Djokovic's paperwork to get into Australia, and found that his story might not add up. After he allegedly tested positive for COVID-19 back in December, Djokovic posted photos maskless at an event, where he also was presenting awards to kids. On Wednesday this week, the tennis player admitted he didn't immediately isolate after his positive COVID result, which is already pretty sus. And then he got caught in another blunder. On his health form to get into Australia, Djokovic said he had not traveled internationally in the 14 days prior to his arrival, which was also proven to be false. Now, Australia's top immigration official is considering rejecting Djokovic's visa again, a move that could ban him from entering the country for three years. So while Djokovic is practicing for this Grand Slam like he's already won his off-court battle, Australia's government isn't ready to say, advantage Djokovic. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at On Tuesday, President Biden hit the road and went to Atlanta to throw his support behind a voting rights bill that's been kicking around the Senate for months. Biden seemed frustrated at a lot of points throughout his speech, but one moment in particular caught a lot of people's attention.
1: I believe that the threat to our democracy is so grave that we must find a way to pass these voting rights bills. Debate them. Vote. Let the majority prevail. And if that bare minimum is blocked, we have no option but to change the Senate rules, including getting rid of the filibuster for this.
0: In his speech, the president endorsed getting rid of the filibuster in order to push through this legislation.
1: I've been having these quiet conversations with members of Congress for the last two months. I'm tired of
2: being quiet.
0: And while the fate of that specific bill is still TBD... We wanted to remind ourselves what the filibuster actually is and recap both sides of the spicy debate over changing it. Let's start with a definition. Filibusters are unique to the Senate, and it's an action designed to prolong debate and delay or prevent a vote on a bill, resolution, or amendment. Basically, it allows lawmakers to stall a motion indefinitely. While the word filibuster might make you think of lawmakers talking for hours, at least in the movies.
1: I've got a few things I want to say to this body. And as a matter of fact, I'm not gonna leave this body until I do
2: get them said.
0: Senators could technically trigger a filibuster by simply announcing that they want to block a bill. Sounds pretty annoying, but there's only one way to avoid a filibuster. It's called cloture, otherwise known as getting 60 senators on your side to end debate on most topics and move to a vote. Which brings us to why we're talking about this now. In case you missed it, the Senate is a 50-50 split with VP Kamala Harris serving as the tiebreaker. But in order for Dems to actually pass a lot of non-budget related legislation, they need 10 Republican votes to hit that cloture threshold. And spoiler, bipartisanship isn't so big in DC these days. Hence, President Biden saying, let's finally get rid of this filibuster and pass some stuff already. So let's break down both sides of the argument about the filibuster. People in favor of keeping the filibuster argue that it promotes compromise and bipartisanship in the Senate. Because if you have to make friends across the aisle in order to get a vote on your bill, you're more motivated to negotiate to find common ground. And as a result, you might get legislation that makes both sides and more Americans happy. In the past, the filibuster has forced lawmakers to play nice and actually get stuff done— and keeping it might encourage them to do so again. Filibuster fans also say keeping the filibuster provides checks on how much power the majority party in the Senate actually has. If a party has only slight majority control, like the Democrats do right now, but there was no filibuster, they could basically pass whatever they wanted, even if almost half the Senate totally disagrees. Not to mention, if the balance of power flips after, say, a midterm election, that's bad news for the party that was just in power, which basically lost any say it had. By the way, that's a very real possibility for Democrats this November. And it's a bad outcome for Americans who would have to deal with endless policy flip-flopping. And finally, some say the filibuster is essential to how the Senate in particular is supposed to operate. Unlike in the House, where bills can pass via a simple majority rule or the presidential race, which is decided by a majority of electoral votes, Some people argue that the Senate needs to be a legislative body that uniquely has to seek out compromise. So those are the arguments in favor of keeping the filibuster. The arguments against? The first is pretty obvious. Getting rid of the filibuster might mean more legislation can actually get passed in the Senate faster. 60-vote supermajorities are pretty rare, and as you've probably noticed, bills tend to move really slowly in the Senate if they get voted on at all. For Democrats, that's a pretty big pain point right now, as they've seen a lot of their agenda fail that 60-seat filibuster test. And now, a lot of Dems are saying voting rights and preserving our democracy is a pretty big reason to say bye to the filibuster. Another argument in favor of scrapping the filibuster is that it gives a small number of senators the opportunity to derail and obstruct progress on bills the Senate already gives small and rural states the same number of senators as states with big populations, like California or New York. So minority interests are already overrepresented. Plus, it's pretty rare that legislators actually use the filibuster to engage in meaningful debates in the first place. Rather, it's used as a way to close the door on legislation. So if it's not actually creating compromise, and it gives a small number of lawmakers an outsized say, what's the point of having it in the first place? And the final argument in favor of getting rid of the filibuster is, it was kind of an accident to begin with. It wasn't written into the Constitution, nor was it a part of the Founding Fathers' OG vision for the United States. In fact, some historians say we can actually trace the filibuster to the 1800s, when Vice President Aaron Burr suggested a rule similar to the filibuster, and it accidentally became a pretty integral rule in the Senate. How's that for leaving your mark? We should note the filibuster doesn't favor one political party in particular. Democrats and Republicans have both used the filibuster to their advantage in the past. In recent years, Democrats used the filibuster to block funding for President Trump's border wall, and Republicans have used it to limit gun control. So those are the pros and the cons, but where does that leave us? Kind of like the Senate, a bit stuck. Democrats are planning to fast-track the voting rights bill for a vote next week. Whether or not Majority Leader Chuck Schumer motions to end the filibuster to get that bill over the finish line is TBD, and all Schumer needs is for every Democrat to be on board, because, in an ironic twist, all you need is a simple majority vote to get rid of the filibuster. But Biden and Schumer likely don't even have the full support of their own party. Democratic Senators Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kristen Cinema of Arizona have both been pretty outspoken in favor of keeping the filibuster. So, like it or not, the filibuster could be sticking around for a while longer. Here at the skim, we do New Year's resolutions a little differently. Every January, we do a How to Skim Your Life challenge, where each weekday of the month, we unlock a new daily task. This year, it's all about things that help you find joy in your everyday routine. And we get into all of it, from skimming down your phone apps to getting better sleep. These small changes can have a big payoff. And this week, we're focusing on a challenge that's literally about getting you more money. That's right, we're gonna skim your paycheck with a little help.
2: My name is Marcia Barnes. I'm a personal finance expert and the founder of The Finance Bar.
0: Let's get really basic here. Most of us make a salary, but the total amount of that salary isn't what shows up in our checking accounts. Here's where the rest of that money is going.
2: Our money goes to federal expenses, It goes to medical expenses. It goes to any retirement accounts that we have or have not signed up for because many employers just sign you up. It may go to state taxes. So those are just some of the things where our money goes that we often do not pay attention to and we need to be a little bit more mindful of it.
0: Think of it like this. Any money that's not showing up in your checking account is typically going into one of three places taxes, healthcare, or retirement. And while there's not much we can actually do about taxes, we can get a better understanding of healthcare and retirement. Starting with healthcare, a big portion of your paycheck is probably going to your health insurance premiums. And that amount can seem like a lot but over the long haul it's probably saving you money because healthcare is expensive and we can't always predict what kind of care we're gonna need in the future but there is still a way to get money from your employer health insurance plan in addition to health insurance some companies also offer health spending accounts or flexible spending accounts HSAs and FSAs are pre-tax dollars that you put away for later to spend for future medical expenses like tampons or glasses.
2: A flexible spending account and a health savings account are are very similar. So they, they're tax-free money that allows you to put money away to pay for things like medical and dental expenses. The primary difference is with a flexible spending account, it's usually limited per your employer of how much you can contribute. You usually have to use it within a year. So you have to use that money within a year. However, your employer is able to offer a grace period. And many of them do. With a health savings account, A primary difference, Alex, is that you have to be enrolled in a high deductible health plan to be able to contribute to an HSA and there's the money rolls with you. So there's not a limit on the grace period of how or when you need to use it.
0: Some companies also match HSA or FSA contributions. So be sure to look at your company's plan because, hey, it's free money. So that's where some of your paycheck is going. Another place it's going is into retirement savings accounts. Depending on where you work, you can have access to different types of retirement accounts. Spoiler alert here, but these are also acronyms. You can have a 401k, a 403b, an IRA, a pension plan, a Roth IRA, and the list goes on. Basically, all these accounts kind of do the same thing, just slightly differently. It's money set aside that you can access later to retire. A lot of retirement plans are offered by employers, like a 401k, but even if your employer doesn't offer a retirement savings option, you can still have your own individual retirement account. We'll leave a link in our show notes that explains all these different types of plans, but Barnes told us an easy way to maximize those savings is to look into whether your company has a matching plan, which again is free money for you. Barnes told us, besides getting familiar with your healthcare and retirement options, there are a couple of other ways you can get the most out of your paycheck.
2: Some things that we often don't think about, Alex, is where are we putting our money? What type of savings accounts that we use? So when you think about a savings account, you may just have a traditional regular savings account. You may have the same savings account that you used in college, but one thing I highly recommend is a high yield savings account. And what a high yield savings account allows you to do is to put money in this account and typically the interest that you're earning on it is at 10 to 25 times higher than it would be in a traditional savings account and something else i'll say that we often don't pay attention to is if we have credit cards use credit cards that's going to give you a little bit of money back so cash back type of credit cards it's going to give you some money back to either pay towards your bill or something else that you want to purchase and I'll also share this one, lastly, that many don't consider is, if your employer works with any type of wireless network and you have a wireless phone, see if they offer employee discounts on cell phones and services. And I know that some of this may take a little bit of legwork, but it's definitely necessary to really maximize your check and just to keep more money in your pocket.
0: So that's skimming your paycheck 101. We'll be back next week with another How to Skim Your Life challenge. And in the meantime, if you want to follow along for the whole month, go to slash challenge. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was produced by me, Alex Carr, along with our associate producer, Kira Long. We had additional help this week from Sajin Coriellis. Our senior audio engineer is Andrew Calloway, and Graylin Brashear is our head of audio. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, check out the other podcasts from The Skim. 9 to 5-ish is where we're talking all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. And Pop Cultured is our weekly deep dive into the culture stories you can't stop thinking about. Follow 9 to 5-ish and Pop Cultured wherever you're already listening to us.